During this season of Advent that we, the church, experience feelings of anticipation and expectation for the coming of Christmas, which is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. If you have children or grandchildren in and out of your home this time of year, you feel anticipation as those children watch and wait for presents to appear under the tree counting down the days and hours until they get to open them. Advent tests our patience. When Christ first came, he came at an appointed time and place to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. When Caesar Augustus had issued a decree that all the world should be registered, during the time Quirinius was governor of Syria. I say that so when you read the Christmas story at home, you'll know how to pronounce Quirinius. The timing of Christ's first coming was not accidental. It was providential, meaning it was prepared and planned for and directed by the sovereign God for the right time, for the right hour. It was God's time to fulfill God's purpose and God's plan. This Advent season exhorts us all to wait on God and to trust him. Are you waiting on God to act in some way? Does it seem to you that God is silent 
absent, maybe even late. Be patient. Have faith in God. Endure. These are the lessons of Advent. For in the right time, Christ came. In the right time, God acts. In the right time, Christ is coming again, church. Jesus understood God's timing. It might surprise you to know that Jesus understood also the feelings of expectation of the Advent season. Jesus knew what it was like to live with anticipation for the hour of God to arrive. Jesus knew what it was like to wait on God's timing. And when the time came for which Jesus had long awaited, the time for his passion, the time for his cross, the time for his glory, Jesus stepped into that hour not in panic, but in prayer. The prayers of Christmas. The prayers of Christmas are the prayers of Christ that reveal the reason for his first advent. The prayers of Christ here at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in John chapter 17 are not isolated from the Christmas story. This is the Christmas story in its more complete form. The prayers preceding Christ's cross are intimately connected to the purpose of Christ's coming. And if we want to learn why Jesus came, We must listen to what Jesus prayed. This Advent season exhorts us all to listen, to move from Christ's incarnation to his intercession, to listen as Jesus communes with his Father in heaven through prayer, to listen as Jesus exposes his heart, his will, his desires, his anticipations, and to live with those same anticipations in our own hearts too. It's not enough just to await Christ's birth. We must wait with anticipation for the purposes of his birth. If I were to ask you this question, why did Jesus come into the world? What would you say? How would you answer that question? Would you say, Jesus came into the world to save sinners such as me. If so, understand that Jesus did come into the world to save sinners such as me. But there's more, so much more. Sitting in this sanctuary right now or listening to this message right now, someone has settled for a simplistic Christmas. Not a simple Christmas, but a simplistic Christmas. Here's the difference. Simple is a good word. It means something is easy to understand. We like simple. But simplistic is a bad word. It means that something is quite complex and it's being treated simpler than what it really is. Simplistic is a bit deceptive. Someone 
has settled for a simplistic Christmas, treating the coming of Christ as a means of your salvation and nothing more. As a child, someone thinks of Christmas as a means of getting presents and nothing more. Someone has reduced Christ to an escape from judgment in the fires of hell and nothing more. Someone has a testimony of attending a meeting, walking an idol, saying a prayer and serving a church and nothing more. Someone in one hour of life had some kind of experience with Jesus and believed that was all that was needful. That was all the reason for Jesus' coming and then treated Jesus like we treat the elf on the shelf, setting him aside or hiding him away where he's been for some time. How long has Jesus been on the shelf? What I've been speaking about is not Jesus. That's not salvation. That's not eternal life. That's not the peace of Christ. That's not the reason for Christmas that God's word speaks about. So let us listen together to the prayers of Christ, which are the prayers of Christmas, and learn who Jesus is and the fullness of what Christmas is about. Are you ready? The first three verses of John chapter 17 reveal Jesus praying about his glory, his gift, and his God. His glory in verse one, his gift in verse two, and his God in verse three. Look with me at verse one of John chapter 17. It begins this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. When Jesus had spoken these words, this is the context of Christ's prayer. Prayers have a context, meaning prayers are not offered in a void or in a vacuum. Have you noticed? We pray in response to circumstances. We are to pray, the scriptures tell us, in response to all things. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17 says, pray without ceasing, meaning don't stop. Jesus prays in a context. And what words had Jesus just spoken? What is the context of this prayer? He had finished speaking about what is called his final discourse, his final message to his disciples before Jesus turned his face to the cross. And the last words of his final discourse are recorded one verse prior, verse 33 of chapter 16. Look at it with me. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have, what's that word? Peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What an encouragement for us all on this Peace Sunday of Advent. Jesus desires for all of us to have peace at the hearing of his word. Yes, we are still in this world. 
Yes, we do and we will have tribulation in this world, but we may have peace in the world through Christ and his word. We may take heart, as Jesus said. That is, take courage, have confidence, because Christ, even before his cross, has already overcome the world. John 17, verse one, again, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is the posture of Christ's prayer. Christmas and the story of Christmas directs our eyes to earth because heaven came down to earth. And so we look at earth where God became a real man and we look at humanity and earthly things like the donkey, the manger, the stable, the things of earth. But the Christmas star, the angelic hosts appearing to the shepherds, this prayer balance our gaze back to heaven, completing the circuit of the Christmas story. Jesus in his humanity recognized where he came from and he recognized where his help comes from too. Psalm 121, verse one and two, the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We are accustomed to bowing our heads in prayer. Why then did Jesus lift up his eyes to heaven when he prayed? The answer is because that is where his father is. Look with me again at verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, he said, Father, this is the address of Christ's prayer. Jesus does not pray to himself. Jesus does not pray to the Holy Spirit. Jesus addresses his prayer to his Father. As we think about his incarnation, the Christmas story, much is said about Jesus' mother, Mary. But what is said as it relates to Joseph makes it abundantly clear that Joseph is not Jesus's father. Hear with me from the Christmas story, Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The child to be born will not be called the Son of Joseph, but will be called Holy, the Son of God. For the father of this child is the Holy Father, the righteous Father, the heavenly Father, God, the Father. We must not overlook this one purpose of Christ coming into the world concerning his Father. It is so that God the Father might become our Father too. John, having preserved for us through the Spirit the context of Christ's prayer, the posture of Christ's prayer, and the address of Christ's prayer, all three of which are important for us as we pray too, our context and our posture and our address. He now preserves for us the content of Christ's prayer. And this is what Jesus prays. This is the first prayer of Christmas. This is the preeminent reason for why Jesus came. Look with me again at verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. It is no accident that Jesus first prays for his glory. Jesus' first petition is, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son. To glorify means simply to make great or to raise up high. Jesus preeminently desires the greatness of the hour that has come. And it's not an hour to make much of himself. It's an hour that through his glory, through his obedience, his father will be glorified. Notice why Jesus prays for the father to glorify his son. Verse one again, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That's the petition, and here's why. That the son may glorify you. Jesus was dependent upon the father acting first. Not Jesus acting first, but the father acting first. Father, you glorify me first so that I then may glorify you. It's all for the Father's glory. Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Why? For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Jesus is looking forward to the cross, the glory of the cross, the display of the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Father through the cross. Jesus knows that his submission and obedience to the Father's will, through that his Father will be made great in the eyes of all people. Luke tells us this about Christ's birth in Luke chapter two, beginning in verse 10. This is when the angels appeared to the shepherds. Listen to God's word. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, watch this, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The entirety of Jesus's life from the very day of his birth in Bethlehem was to bring his father the highest glory. So in praying, glorify your son. Jesus is praying that his father's will be done. Father, he had prayed before the cross, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Church, how do we begin our prayers? How should we begin our prayers? With the glory of God. May all that is done bring glory to God. May all that is done make God great in the eyes of people. Are you suffering right now? Are you hurting? Are you oppressed, attacked, depressed, ill? Do you think really that God can't be made great through all of that? Do you forget that Jesus was about to go to the cross when he prayed this? Do you forget the agony and the sweat like great drops of blood, the whip, the thorns, the nails, the forsaking of his father? Jesus knew these things were about to happen. Jesus knew the manner of his death and he has said so. But these things did not discourage Jesus from praying. Quite the contrary, these things encourage Jesus to pray through to the glory of his Father. Jesus took on the cross that awaited through prayer. Jesus eagerly anticipated the cross because it was through the cross that the Father would be glorified and that the Father's steadfast love and faithfulness would be once and for all and finally made visible and known. And so this is the first, the preeminent petition of Jesus's prayer. Verse one again in its entirety, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Next in verse two, Jesus prays for his gift. Notice the repeated use of the words, given and give as Jesus reveals his gift to the world. Verse two, since or just as Jesus prayed, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The father has given the son authority over all flesh. What is Jesus doing here in this prayer? Jesus is rehearsing what God has done in his prayer. Jesus isn't going to God first as we often do and say, God, I, I want you to act 
act in this way. I want you to do this or that, and I hope you'll do it. Instead, Jesus first goes to what God has already done and said, and from that grounding and appeal, he makes his prayer. When Jesus asks for something, he asks on the basis of what God has already done. The Father has already given the Son authority over all flesh. And this is great commission authority of Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this has already taken place. Jesus has authority over all the world. But the Father has given the Son people of the world. The Father gives the Son people of the flesh. The Father has given the Son people out of the world. Look at verse two. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, here it is, to all whom you, that's the Father, have given him. That's the Son. This says something about authority. Authority requires submission. Not everyone in the world submits to God through Christ. And not everyone will submit to God through Christ. Not everyone gathering with the church submits to Christ either. It's a submission problem a person has. It's a pride problem. And ultimately, it's a sin problem. That's the sin of the world. Sin opposes submission to God's authority. Not everyone belongs to God through Christ because not everyone will submit to the authority given to Christ, the lordship given to Christ. It's as if when someone prays for salvation, they say, Lord, I want to receive you as savior so I won't go to hell, but I do not want to receive you as Lord which you are, those two are not separated. You have to receive Jesus as he is, as both Savior and Lord. If you don't receive him as Lord, he's not your Savior. If you don't receive him as your Savior, he's not your Lord. Not everyone belongs to God through Christ because not everyone will submit to the authority given to Christ, and only those who God has given to Christ will receive Christ's gift. The scripture says, to all whom you have given him. God's sovereignty is in view here. Do you have a problem with God's sovereignty, his power, his authority? Does it make you uncomfortable that Jesus here prays that God the Father is revealed as a giver of people to the Son? If this language bothers you, then you may have a submission problem. We cannot pray without submission to God through Christ's authority. This is what it means when we pray in Jesus' name. We make a mockery of prayer when we act and then pray asking God to bless our actions. We make a mockery of prayer when we pray to submit God's will to our own. That's not what Jesus does here. Instead, Jesus appeals to what God has already said and done and rehearses that through his prayer. It's informed by the word. The Father has given the Son authority over flesh, and the Father has given the Son people of the flesh. And watch this, 
The Son gives eternal life to those people. This is his gift. Jesus' gift, eternal life. John chapter three, verse 16, we know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 does not say God so loved the world that he gave eternal life. What did the Father give? His Son, so that through his Son we will not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus is given authority to give eternal life to who the Father has given to him. Do you desire eternal life with God? I'm going to tell you what to do. Believe in the Son God has given the world, and you will have eternal life. Jesus prays for his glory so that his Father would be glorified. Jesus prays for his gift so that people in the world might have eternal life. And lastly, Jesus prays for knowledge of his God. What is meant by his God? It's the answer to why eternal life is such a gift, church. Eternal life is not about eternal life itself. Just as Christmas is not about Christ's birth itself, there's another end in view. I don't remember the name of the story. Perhaps it's a version of the Aladdin story, but if you know it, you know that there's a version where a person gets a wish, he wishes for eternal life, he receives that eternal life, but then he gets trapped in a cave, never to come out of it. And so forever, he's just sitting in a dark cave, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Eternal life isn't so wonderful then, isn't it? But the eternal life that God gives is wonderful. It's a gift of God through Christ because the end isn't eternal life itself, the end is God. Don Carson says it this way, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one, God. Look with me at verse three. This is a definition, a confession of what eternal life is. Jesus prays, and this is eternal life. Here it is, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There are many lowercase g gods. We humans make for ourselves many of them, all of them. God doesn't make false gods, we do. God doesn't make idols, we do. For some reason, the season of Christmas can become an idol for some. Presents have become an idol for some. Decorations can become an idol for some. Traditions can become an idol for some. We foolishly worship these things that will all burn up in the last day. We foolishly worship things that won't last. They may give us happiness, but they cannot give us life with God. But Jesus prays that for those who the Father has given him, to whom the Son has given eternal life, that they might know God. This knowledge is not information for our brains. This knowledge is a relationship. 
an experiential knowing as a father knows his son and as a son knows his father. Jesus desires that we enter into the same relationship that he has with his father. Eternal life is knowing the father. Eternal life is not living a good life. It's not serving a church. It's a relationship of knowing the father and who is the father. Verse three again, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one true God, and there is only one way to know the true God. He must be revealed to us. And this brings us to the Christ conclusion. Jesus came into the world so that he might reveal to us his Father, the only true God, so that we might know in relationship God as our Father. But to know God as our Father, we must also know the Son. Eternal life is knowing the Son. And Jesus is God's Son. The prayers of Christmas lead us to Christ, and Christ leads us to God, the Father. Do you know the Christ of Christmas? Do you know the one true God? I'm not just talking to those outside or listening, I'm talking to you. Do you desire, do we desire that our lives be lived in a way that brings glory to our Father? This text ends for today with a missional statement. Verse three again, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The Father sent Jesus into the world, yes, to save sinners such as me, but also that in our salvation we might be brought into right relationship with our heavenly Father and live and pray for his glory forever. The hour has come and is coming when Christ will return. As we anticipate the celebration of Christ's birth, May this hour be the hour, if it has not been, of your new birth, of your regeneration. The reason why Jesus prays that he gives eternal life to those the Father has given to him is because we cannot get to God on our own, by our own merits or by our own doing. We can't. Our salvation begins with God just as it began with God sending his son into the world as we celebrate at Christmas. Luke chapter two, verse 14 says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Bible says we cannot please God apart from faith. We must first believe that God exists, but it's not enough that you believe God exists. You must also believe that he is a rewarder, Hebrews tells us, of those that diligently seek him. As we seek Christ this Advent season, would you seek him in your heart? Is he there? 
If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved.